Well, welcome. Hello, everyone. We are here today on uh, February 22nd, talking about our Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology December edition with our wonderful editor-in-chief, Dr. Paula Hillard. Greetings, Nicole. <laughs> it's good to have you. So um, we had talked last time on our podcast about a wonderful book that you recommended called Ava Luna by Isabel Allende. So what did you think about it? Well, I really enjoyed it. It was good escape. It's the story of a storyteller. Um, and the, the main character, Ava Luna, uh, is a storyteller. And it talks about her um, and her life from uh, childhood on up through adulthood. Uh, I did see a review that called it overly sentimental. <laughs> I rather enjoyed the sentimentality. And um, it's, it has some great, I thought, good characters. Um, and uh, it's, it's magical realism. So it's, it's kind of um, fantasy and, and reality as well. And uh, the other thing I enjoyed is a great trans woman uh, character. Yeah, so that's that, true. Oh, that that's was true. kind of fun. I know. I, I love the book, too. I thought it was really beautiful, beautifully written. It reminded me, we talked about it, the 100 Years of Solitude, and there's just so many characters, uh -huh. and they weave all these wonderful people together. And, and I like that there were some, you know, hardships of women, and these women, again, like so many do get through it, and they succeed, and they're, you know, bonded. I don't know. I like all the woman power stuff, and this had, like you said, a great transgender character, great women. Um, I heard also they're making a play, but of course it was delayed by COVID, ah, but that might okay. be fun. <laughs> we'll do a J-PAD yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. field trip. <laughs> and then, it sounds and, good. It sounds good. And you had a good idea for our next book read for our listeners. So I got the recommendation from um, Goodreads, um, and I, I enjoy that, that app of uh, having family members and friends uh, who can recommend books to read. And uh, this particular book was not recommended by a family member, but was their number one recommended book of last year. And it's called The Midnight Library. And it's about a, a fantasy library where each book is a different path you might have taken in your life. And I thought that sounded really intriguing um, and uh, thought it, it would be something that would be enjoyable to read. So The Midnight Library and let me see, the author is um, Matt Haig, H-A-I-G. Uh, a dazzling novel about all the choices that go into a life well-lived from the internationally best-selling author. And uh, so that's, that's what I'm proposing, The Midnight Library. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Sounds really good. I've already ordered it. Um, all right. Well, good. Well, let's dive into this great uh, edition from December. I thought it was just, it was a great one. It was rich with so many articles. We, we really had to narrow it down this time and combine a few things. Um, I think one of the fun things that was in this uh, article was titled Hot Topics in Social Media and Reproductive Health. And it's a review article by uh, Aaron Kelleher and Dr. Megan Moreno. And I think you made a really good point when you said, no, this is a really good one, Nicole, we should talk about on our podcast is it doesn't really, the title doesn't necessarily represent what the article is thoroughly covering. Um, and so I think it was a really great sort of depiction of social media use among our teens, uh, sort of 
reiterating like Snapchat is more used for females and YouTube more for males, which I actually really can appreciate from sort of my own kids when they were teens. And then my friend's kids, who's like, she has two sons and they're exclusively on YouTube. And I don't you know, ever remember <laughs> my daughters really being on YouTube. And, and I thought it was interesting and not surprising either that adolescent females spend more time online than their male cohorts. And then, like you said, I think they really didn't talk about this in the title, but this article really took a dive into how sexual and gender minority youth use social media and um, the big important you know, role that plays. Um, what did you sort of what did you sort of take away from that and think that was important to share, too? Well, I, I, I enjoyed that it is helping in my search to better understand digital natives. I love that term. And it's, <laughs> it's term. so clear. I mean, I see my six-year-old granddaughter um, doing things that are just so easy for her that have taken me a while to learn. So, so I thought that was good. And um, it, it sort of tied in and, and confirmed that um, girls and, and teen, female teens were um, more negatively affected than boys by um, self-comparisons, comparing mm -hmm. themselves to others. And, and that reminded me of, of a documentary that I saw recently that was recommended by my kids to me. And it's called um, The Social Dilemma. And it was in a way very, it was heartbreaking in terms of a, a female that was teen who was, um, someone made just an offhand comment about her appearance and she was so fixated on that and started to ruminate about, I think it was her ears, but something that she didn't like about herself. And it just was mm -hmm. devastating to her self-esteem. And, and it, it hadn't occurred to me prior to watching that documentary. And I think this article really affirms it um, that girls can be negatively impacted by social media in a, a profound way that could be very harmful. So um, I think it's it's an important article in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there was a part where they were talking about sort of emotional posting etiquette and expression. And, and it reminded me of how sometimes when girls and patients with eating disorders get admitted and have groups with other patients with eating disorders, they learn further bad habits. And it's a little bit um, confounding, like you want to help them. So you don't want them to learn bad things in group that can make their condition worse. And that's what this talk about is some, some people will post really expressive emotions and even suicide notes and suicide ideas. Yep. And so it's, it's definitely a re an arena where you really have to be careful where teens are turning. Um, that part made me feel very sad too, because it's not necessarily a supervised time when they're on, um, you know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever they're, they're tweeting. Um, I did like on the positive, maybe some future directions for um, educational opportunities. I like sort of that flip side, which I know we've sort of been thinking about yes. more and more at NASPAG and more and more in academic and educational arenas is putting some reliable information on the internet in a way that teens can access it. So absolutely. Absolutely. But I so, thought this was yep. a great, it was a great, it's kind of had a lot of different topics and interesting um, insights in this article. So I thought that was a worthy read. I agree. I agree. All right. So the next two we're going to um, sort of highlight together. There's sort of the contraception angle um, or using hormonal contraception for medical management. The first one was 
contraception counseling and use among adolescent and young adult female patients undergoing cancer treatment, a, res a retrospective analysis uh, by Dr. Sarah Abelman and Julia Crone. And this was a retrospective chart review from Yale at the New Haven Hospital from 2013 to 18, looking at patients 15 to 25 who received cancer treatment, uh, just excluding those who received only surgery, so no um, chemotherapeutics. The average age was about 20, and 33% were documented as receiving sexual health, health counseling, which um, I thought was interesting. What would you say your, with that parallel, your experience, 33%? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, these are the kids that we want to get referred to us. These are, are the ones that we would love to see and talk to. Um, at the time of their diagnosis, pre-chemo, for one, uh, thinking about what chemo they might be getting and impact on, on menses and ovarian function, but certainly afterwards as well. And, and uh, I, I'll never forget a, a patient um, who um, was seen by me or, or they, I got a consult from our uh, pediatric oncology team that I, I needed to uh, see the patient right away. She was having abnormal bleeding and fairly heavy bleeding and hemorrhage. And just sort of to be sure that all the bases had been covered, I said, did you get a pregnancy test? And mm. there was just this silence on the other end of the line and they had not. And she was having a, a spontaneous abortion um, oh when they gosh. finally got the test. And they were just shocked um, that she was sexually active, that they were not aware of, and that she had gotten pregnant that they were not aware of. And and so, yeah, it was um, a big reminder that yeah. um, we, we, we would love to see these kids and uh, prevent that yeah. kind of a scenario. Yeah, teens have sex, I think, is the moral to that story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Even, <laughs> they yeah, all do. Even ones, <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think the one thing that I took away from the study, which we should like, you know, affirms everything, which is those who did have sexual health counseling had increased rates of contraception use. So surprise, I think that's the more like, yeah, <laughs> not talking about it is not the, the answer. So I think like you just said, this is such a gap and it's a gap everywhere and it's a gap today. And so I think that was a great study to highlight the importance of that. And sort so of this one and, and the next one, um, adolescents with congenital heart disease, I think makes the point that we just need to proactively link with our subspecialist colleagues in pediat pediatric whatever, pediatric cardiology, pediatric, um, et cetera, <laughs> all of the subspecialties um, to try to um, make the point that we are happy to see these kids if they don't feel comfortable having the discussion and the confidential discussion uh, and ascertaining whether the kids are sexually active or not. Um, or planning to become sexually active, then we're happy to see these kids as well. And uh, just a, a small point, but again, relates to, to those in, in pediatric subspecialties. One of the things that I have found is that it's often the nurse practitioners in the specialties who um, kids may feel the most comfortable in talking with and who may have better rapport than the physician may have in the subspecialties and, and who's often a really good link for us. And we have a, a wonderful uh, nurse practitioner who staffs an adolescent and young adult uh, clinic for those with the diagnosis of cancer 
um, at Packard and, and she's fabulous and does a great job of sexual health counseling and contraception and refers to us appropriately regularly. Um, so that link um, may be with an advanced practice uh, practitioner as well. Yeah, I think, and I think you're absolutely right about the nurse practitioner because we, you know, we're finding those links. I mean, and I always have in, in my career as well is, you know, with the rheumatologists and with the transplant team mm -hmm. and with our oncologists and hematologists. So I think, um, you know, that's the collaboration is, is sort of saying, yeah, you can have a confidential visit with these teens and you have to. You're like, well, the parents don't want to step out. And you're like, I understand, but this, you know, <laughs> we, we know how to do that, right? We know how to have those confidential visits. Yep. So that's perfect. Yeah, I don't have anything else to add other than I 100% concur and agree fully. So our third and final article for our podcast today, which is one that you both, you and I both agree is really interesting, um, was titled Compensatory Ovarian Hypertrophy After Unilateral Oophorectomy evaluation of ovarian volumes in pediatric and adolescent populations. And this is with Dr. Allison Mayhew and her team with Krista Childress in Atlanta. Um, and I know we have both like great thoughts and I'll just sort of summarize the article briefly. Um, but basically it, it sort of stemmed from the idea that animals have shown compensatory ovarian hypertrophy following unilateral oophorectomy, um, as well as males and their testicles, which isn't surprising. So this was a nice, retrospective chart review of medical codes for oophorectomy over 12 years and then reviewed post-operative volumes. And um, as you and I talked, it, they actually had over 90 patients with a post-op ultrasound. Um, and then they were able to compare and evaluate that post-operative ovarian volumes in girls who'd had an oophorectomy were actually larger in girls under 10 and over 10 compared to three published standards of what ovarian volume should be. So I think you made up some, you made some great points about um, limitations of the study and then thoughts about the ovarian follow-up. So I would love to reiterate that on our podcast. So um, one of the issues is that the, the published standards that they used for comparison, I completely agree that, that they used what we have, uh, but those aren't great. There are some relatively small numbers um, so that's one issue is, is who they were comparing um, these with. And then the other question is, why did these girls get a subsequent um, imaging study done? And um, I don't routinely order ultrasound. We don't have clear guidance for what we should be doing in terms of benign masses. But in my practice, it's not absolutely routine to do subsequent surveillance. Sometimes I'm pressured by the family. So a, a family who is anxious about what the ovary, the remaining ovary looks like uh, is a situation where sometimes uh, I, I get asked to do an ultrasound. But, but that's one drawback of their limitation of the study is for sure why these had a subsequent ultrasound. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and then, and in fact, I'm I'm sorry, yeah. but just one one more quick no. thought. In in exactly. fact, those that um, that may have had the ultrasound done um, may be different from those who did not have an ultrasound done. And there there were um, it was fewer than half 
of the patients they had initial, initially looked at of the initial group who'd had an oophorectomy um, had a subsequent ultrasound done. So, so uh, again, that just illustrates that we don't routinely get ultrasounds on all kids after an oophorectomy. Right, absolutely. Um, and then what about sort of the thoughts of, of using ovarian suppression after an oophorectomy? especially highlighting that that there may be possible increase in size. So I think that, that one of the things that, that we all do is to practice on the basis of our experience. (laughs) So small, Um, but I will never forget the patient that I had. And I was called by our pediatric oncology service, a patient who had had a uh, previous um, I believe it was ovarian malignancy, but had had a uh, malignancy and was having surveillance uh, because of that and had an ovarian mass. And they were essentially calling me, asking me to take the, the, the patient to the OR that day because they were very worried about um, recurrence of her malignancy in the, the contralateral ovary. And in speaking with the patient, she was not having symptoms and was in the second half of her cycle. And I suggested that this might possibly be a, a benign functional cyst uh, related to the timing in her cycle in the second half of the cycle. And and it was difficult. Everyone was so anxious. The, the oncology team was anxious. The patient was anxious. Her family was anxious. They were making me anxious. Am I doing the right thing? But I said, no, we, we really need to wait because this could be a corpus luteum cyst and in which case it will resolve um, in a week or so. And lo and behold, it did. And so for that reason, I really have always felt I would rather not be in that situation where everyone is so anxious about either a recurrence of even a benign mass, a recurrence, um, that I, I really uh, feel that there is value in suppressing those functional cysts. You're not going to suppress a neoplasm, uh, but you will suppress the functional cysts, the uh, follicular cysts and the corpus luteum cysts that are not rare. Um, so I, um, I would uh, routinely, I do routinely offer, and in fact, to some extent, encourage use of suppression to protect that remaining precious ovary uh, from a functional cyst and anxiety on everybody's part. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great strategy. And I do the same, um, as do so many of us. And I think just while we're being intellectual about this, what what do you prefer? Like, would, what if patients are interested in using something like um, a Mirena IUD? Would that be as optimum for you as a pill patch or ring or shot? No. Or <laughs> Bottom line. <laughs> right. um, so better right. suppression of our functional cysts um, with right. the, without the progestin only options. Um, so I would I would rather have them on on a, a estrogen containing option. Yeah. So it's sort of a nuanced point, but I think it's one that comes up, you know, and, and certainly patients can use both for different things, depending if they're needing birth control or other things as well. But, okay, well, I thought that was a really interesting study and um, kind of useful for counseling patients down the road, too, Absolutely. and thinking about getting ultrasounds after surgery. Yep. Well, I think that wraps up our December edition highlights that we would plan to talk about. Thank you all for listening today, and we look forward to uh, our next podcast on the February edition. Great.
Sounds good. Take care, Nicole. Okay. Thanks, Paula. Bye. Bye-bye.